The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast for AOTG.com, and we have something special for you here. So, this interview that we did with Timothy Hansen was actually going to be a precursor or a lead-in for our AMA with Timothy Hansen. And Timothy's done BFX work for things such as Sleepy Hollow, Castle, The Flash, and you might also remember this little film called uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. So he's done a lot of amazing work. And we were going to use this as sort of a written up article. It wasn't even going to be an audio interview. It was actually going to be a recording that I transcribed and then posted and shared with people. But everything that could go wrong went wrong. (laughs) I was actually out in Los Angeles and I was going to interview Timothy. And I was actually coming from Topanga. And anyone in Los Angeles knows that Topanga is kind of removed. It's referred to as a hippie area, I guess. And as I got on the, uh, or as about to get on the highway, I got a flat tire. And so I was like, all right, whatever, you know, I've changed tires before. So I go and, you know, it's a rental. And I open up the trunk and I go grab the spare tire. And I realize that someone's stolen the jack from the back of the car. So I couldn't change the tire myself, uh, at which point I have to figure out how to get A, I'm, I'm about to miss my interview, uh, and B, I have to figure out how the hell to get to the rental place to uh, get my car fixed. So I called Timothy and I explained what happened and he was extremely understanding considering that I was about half an hour out and you know I was about to miss our interview and he had traveled to come meet me. So he graciously allowed me to interview him via phone. Now here's the thing, I tr- you know, traded the car in, got a new car, they just, they just told me get a new one, we'll fix this for someone else. I was like all right whatever, <laughs> that's, that's fine by me. And uh, the next day, or about a day later, day or two later, I uh, sat down to interview Timothy Hansen via phone. Now, I was out in the middle of nowhere in Topanga, and I was staying in an Airbnb, and I didn't want to wake up the people because it was 8 in the morning, so I went outside, and I recorded it outside. Now again, this was never intended to be an audio interview. It was always intended to be a text version, and what happened was I decided just in case I'm going to record everything the way I, I usually do, but also put in a lab so that I have really high quality uh, audio just in case on myself. Because I was using a, a cheap sort of Skype mic that I have. Uh, so I did that. I took the files. I sent them off to a transcriber. And that was that. And I started working on prepping for the AMA. And uh, What's interesting though is that the transcriber I sent it to first came back and said that the file, she couldn't handle mp3 files uh, because I had compressed it to send it to her. So I sent her the full wave and then she said that she couldn't understand Tim's accent, which made no sense to me because I don't hear an accent on it and even if there was, it's not that different from mine or not that far off. You know, it was very weird so I 
you know, she said she had to find someone, another person to transcribe it. So I was like, all right, that's fine. So needless to say, then she just disappeared. So, and this was about, she was supposed to have it to me a couple, you know, a week before the actual article was going to go up. And then she just disappeared and I had to see if I could find a transcriber to do a quick transcription and I couldn't find one to do it in such a quick turnaround as I needed, or in the quick turnaround that I needed. So needless to say, unfortunately, this didn't go up when I wanted it to, and in text form. So Timothy's extremely understanding. And so I, I, I was like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut this and bring it in and, and, you know, post it as a podcast and share it on the site and what have you. And of course, I go to open up the lab files and they're all corrupted. So... What you're hearing is from my Skype mic. It's not as good uh, as it could be. You'll hear a few digital noises. You also might hear birds in the background. The way I had set up my lav mics, the drop-off is really good, so you wouldn't have heard that. In fact, I've done interviews outside before, and not many people have ever... Actually, I don't think anyone's ever complained. So I apologize for all the noise in the background. Now, with that said, I have to thank Tim for being the most understanding person ever. He's extremely generous with his time and just a really amazing VFX artist. So he's got a couple things you need to check out if you're in VFX. First, check out his, well, there's his reel, which is at thetim.com. And then of course there's Max Depth. And that's what we talk about during the uh, podcast at one point. We discuss the various tutorials that he puts up. And so if you're into VFX, you got to check these out. So it's max-depth.com. So with all that said, it's time for me to allow you to hear this actual interview. And again, thank you to Tim for being so understanding. Here's my interview with Timothy Hansen. To start, like, uh, how did you get into this industry? How did you get into VFX? Um, well, actually, I, it's sort of my second career. Um, kind of like what I was saying in an email the other day is, actually, I started out as an editor. And I did that for about five or six years. And then I got to a point where really the way that the transition happened was I was tired of waiting for art departments to get me my graphics. So I just kind of thought to myself, I'm like, well, how hard can this actually be? So I bought a copy of After Effects and then it just kind of started rolling from there. Like basically every six months, I would kind of pick up a new package because I'm a huge like R&D, like study kind of guy. Like I loved school. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not still in school. (laughs) Um, so I'm, I'm always picking up, you know, something else. So it, it kind of rolled like that as I basically learned everything I could about After Effects. Then I bought Maya and then from there I bought like ZBrush and then I started getting into RealFlow and then Mari and Nuke and just, it, just, it keeps going and going and going. And so it came to a point where I kind of decided, well, do I want to continue editing or do I want to switch over into visual effects? And I really kind of found out that I, I, I like the visual effects side better. Um, even though I still love to, to edit whenever I can get a chance to do it, I just gravitated more towards the artistic side of creating things as opposed to be being chained to what somebody else gives me. <laughs> so one of the questions I have in terms of VFX is whenever I'm looking at VF, you know, if you look at any films, just the, the credits, there's tons of VFX artists on it. And so mm-hmm. how do you go about ensuring that you get some freedom or some artistic creativity when you might be given such a small task as, I don't know, like working on scratches or working on a particular, you know, replacement of a sign or something. So what's, right. what do you have suggestions for, for young VFX artists out there in that type of situation? Well, I would say to have the most freedom in terms of being able to put your 
sort of specific stamp on things is probably more so in the dynamics side of things um, because that's a lot less clear cut. I mean, it is pretty straightforward. Your example is actually really good in terms of, you know, if you're tasked with making some corrugated metal for some object, I mean, it looks like what it looks like because that's what it is. So you are going to be just adding scratches. You are going to be just making some, you know, some, some grime and things like that on that. So it's like, in that case, if you want to be able to not have everything be almost exactly the same process every time, it's really sort of dynamics would, would be a good one because I mean, every simulation is different, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you, you change one small variable and then something that, you know, you had a, a plume of dust that flew over to the right. Now it flies everywhere. And then you have to figure out, Oh crap, <laughs> how do I how fix that? Yeah. I, I would say that there's probably the, the most amount of variance in your day to day when you're a, a dynamics artist and even a copper. Um, really to a, to a certain degree because there's a lot of freedom there trying to put finishing touches on at the end. But yeah, I mean, probably the most, you know, cog in the wheel kind of parts of the production pipeline are your modelers and your texture artists because you, you really, you're given a, a direction and you have to match that. There's no really, you know, back and forth there. You've been working in television and you just worked in film for the Avengers. So how did you get into the, the television side uh, first and then transition into the film? Uh, well, really, it's uh, especially with the way that kind of the, the industry has been with things moving around a lot, uh, especially like Canada's exploded and like London has exploded again um, in terms of, you know, just visual effects studios and, and things like that. I live in LA, my family's in LA, my wife's family's in LA, so I'm kind of tethered to LA. <laughs> so my job prospects are, are directly tied to just what's in town. So really it started out for a long time. Um, I just did commercials primarily like at the mill and NPC and things like that. Cause that was the work that was available. But then when something comes up kind of like the opportunity that I want up getting at Zoic, you know, they do a lot more, you know, I mean, they, they do commercials and stuff too, but primarily they're television and films. So, that's when I was able to, you know, branch out and do some of those little bit more high profile things because you know, commercials are great, but sometimes your commercial only airs on the East Coast or it only airs once during a basketball game or something like that. Like you do all this work, you're like, oh great, it's only seen by, you know, <laughs> two hundred thousand people. So that that part of it is it has been really great uh, working at Zoic just because they have a, a really wide variety of. Uh, you know, subject matter. What have you taken from the, the commercial side that you use in your, your television feature side? The best thing that I picked up from the commercial side uh, really was just working uh, as fast as possible. Because <laughs> uh, a lot of times you might have anywhere from a week to like maybe a month. So you have to figure out how to put out a really high quality product in the shortest amount of time and really get that sort of something I talk a lot about, especially like when I do tutorials or training and things like that, is it's always about the sort of cost benefit analysis of like, okay, well, obviously we all want to put out the prettiest looking picture that we can, but sometimes you have only X amount of hours finding the, the best way to, you know, trim the fat, but also still get a great image. I mean, really commercials are a crash course in efficiency. <laughs> Well, I remember, I remember, because um, I worked at as an editor at this one place, and they shared space with um, Optics. I remember talking. This is like in ninety nine, two thousand. So when VFX was sort of becoming a big part of everything, and uh, I was talking to one guy. I'm like, 
you know, like about this sort of cost-benefit analysis, and he was talking about things like, you know, if the scene's dark, you might not put as many faces on in Maya or things like that. So one of the issues, though, is, you know, we've gotten such high-quality video now. Like, we're 4K and, and uh, you know... Yeah, you can't hide. Yeah, <laughs> there's, so, there's nowhere to hide. so where where do you find some of the unique spots to sort of, I guess, cut cost or not cut cost, but cut, you know shave off time or shave off quality that people won't notice? Right. So a lot of that comes down to uh, sometimes the the tools you're working with in terms of, say, uh, Exoic or a V-Ray pipeline. And so a number of things that you can do to speed up a V-Ray scene outside of just the obvious as all will just lower your sample rate. Well, comes the point where you lower your samples enough, it's going to start to look like crap. There are, are different things like caching your geometry and using proxy objects instead of the full res, you know, meshes. Um, what's great about that is, say you've got a mesh that has 10 million polygons. That's going to take forever to load. And then you think about that. So you've got a 120 frame, you know, shot that's got to load that 10 million polygon object 120 times every time it opens up a new frame. So taking that mesh and creating a proxy mesh in V-Ray, what that's going to do is going to save that mesh to a file on the disk. And then once that's loaded, it's loaded. So it just stays there. And so you're not reloading that same thing over and over and over again. So that's a big, you know, boost to your Yeah, that would save you a ton of time. Yeah. And then uh, in terms of images, you know, just to your point that you were just talking about, like all of our texture images are like 4K, 8K mapped. Uh, because it has to hold up. So there are different methods where you can take, you know, a TIFF that's 200 megabyte file, and you can convert it into another file format called a, an EXR file. And what that does is say, actually, here's a great example. So imagine you've got, you know, like a kitchen table, mm-hmm. and you've got three soda cans. Yeah. And you've got one soda can a foot away from you, five feet away from you, and 10 feet away from you. Now, with a tiled EXR image, what it's going to do is that Coke can that's the closest to you, it's going to load up the full res image. And the mid one will load up sort of a, a, a mid res version of that file. And the furthest one away gets like a, a 512 you know, version. And that EXR file stores all of these uh, levels of resolution within the file. And then at render time, it says, oh, okay, that Coke can is way off in the distance. I'm only going to give that the 512 map. And that Coke can that's right up front, that's getting the 4K. Yeah, because it has to. And so, yeah, and so that, that'll be a, a more RAM memory efficient way of, of rendering, and that'll shave off a lot of time too. So there are a lot of you know techniques like that where if you're really maximizing the software that you're using and you know what you're doing, you really shave off a lot of time and then still achieve that peak quality of the image in a, in a time frame that you, know, you can actually get the shot done. <laughs> now, how did you get into the Avengers? Can you tell me, I guess, how you got into that and, and what you did for the Avengers? Yeah, so at Zoic, I'm a CE supervisor, visual effects supervisor. So pretty much as things come down the pipe, when we have higher profile projects, we kind of do our own little version of Avengers assembly. <laughs> so, it, for example, on that project, there was me, Rocco uh, Pessianino is like one of our main, main, like top, top guys in the company. So he, he was client side. He dealt with Marvel on the day to day. And then myself, I had the sections of the shots that involved all the dynamics for uh, Loki Scepter, the vibranium stuff. Pretty much anytime you see any of that in the film, that's all of my work. Another soup uh, on our roster, Bob Chapin, 
he took care of all of the um, dust and debris and rock stuff when Thor was fighting Ultron towards the end. And then another one of our soups, Scott Rosecrans, he's a, a great animator, texture guy. Like he took care of, you know, animating the digi doubles, and then we worked together on Thor's cape a lot as well. Um, I did the textures to the cape and then he animated into the cloth then. So basically, you know, we'll get a project in. It's going to be a high profile thing. And then we'll, you know, sort of have a powwow divvied out to the various soups that we have. And then we get a team of artists that, you know, we'll delegate things out to you. Like, okay, I need a layout. I need this model built. I need, you know, something like that. And then it'll funnel back up through me because I do a lot of the dynamics. And then, yeah, I mean, it's, it was, it was, we really didn't have a whole lot of time. I mean, it, <laughs> it was really close to the end. Like, uh, we got our shot, I think, in February. And then we had to be out of it. Yeah, it was the end of February, and we had to be out before March was over. That's crazy, because I, I was talking to uh, Dan Liebenthal, the editor, and he was saying that they, they even had VFX shots coming in. I think that he said that they had around 800 still coming in during the mix, which is crazy. Oh, yeah. No, totally. I mean, it's madness. It's The only thing that I can compare it to that even comes close to being as hectic as what that kind of schedule was for us for Avengers is pilot season. That, I mean, that can be crazy. <laughs> I mean, this, this, this last pilot season, I mean, I was uh, VFX sleeping, so I was on set for one show, and then I was sleeping two other shows, and I mean, it, it was it was nuts. <laughs> we had uh, on one particular show on Frankenstein Coat, we only had five days to do all Jeez. of our visual effects shots for CG. Wow. Because uh, things got, you know, kind of behind schedule on their end and shooting. Yeah. So all of our pre-production time got totally eaten up. And they're just like, okay, here you go. Five days, boom. It's like, oh my God. I'll kiss my wife goodbye. I'll see you in a week. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to an editor yesterday and they were really frustrated because they have all the VFX shots and they're looking at them and they're like, of course, this is going to be very expensive. And yet a lot of the producers are like, seem to don't, to not have an understanding of a how expensive VFX is going to be because you're bringing on a team and you're you're going to have to put all this stuff in, but also how long it's going to take and how much time if you want it to look good, right? Because I mean you could do it fast, but it's going to look bad. So how do you communicate this to the producers? How do you um, make sure that I guess you keep their expectations within a reasonable? reasonable approach to a project yeah and time frame yeah well there's that's really honestly that's one of the most challenging <laughs> parts of uh of any of it is because it's always the telephone game as well because really the majority of those conversations go through my producer so i have to talk to my producer who then talks to their producer and then and they tell two friends and they tell two friends and it's just it can, it can be a little crazy but i mean really what i try to do when I bid a shot or like we're breaking it down, I kind of give sort of two numbers. Like basically, here's the number of what it would take to do this, do it well, not do it slow, not take forever and you know be cute about everything, but this is what it would take to make it look good. Yeah. And then the drop dead is the second one, which is basically if we don't have this amount of time, don't even take the job because we can't, we can't complete it. Because at a certain point, it's just math. I mean, it all, it all just comes under that. Two plus two cannot equal seven. No matter how much you want it to, no matter how much money you want to throw at it, there's a certain amount of time that it takes to produce to produce some stuff. <laughs> I don't know if that answered that question, but I mean, that's basically the exchange that always happens is, okay, here's a project. Here's what we want to pay for it. And here's the amount of time we have. And then we say, okay, well, our first thing is we don't focus on the money first. It's 
can we pull this off and not embarrass ourselves? We always want to look good. You know, you always want to turn in great work. Well, especially like Zoics. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, like, just looking at, if you look at Zoic's page, webpage, like the quality of the work is phenomenal. Right. So, and, and, and that's, you know, we care about that. It's personally, every project that I work on has to be better than the last one I did because I care about what my name gets put on. And I'll definitely, I mean, there have been cases where I've turned down work because I'm like, I, we can't do this and come out looking good. I mean, sometimes money's just money. You know, it's making a couple of dollars today is not worth the damage to to us in the future. So, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about uh, what max depth is. So, max depth, really, it sort of started out as I found myself repeatedly having to retrain uh, artists. Uh, like, you know, uh, with productions, we, you know, it titrates up and it goes back down. There's not a, an enormous amount of people that stay full-time staff in visual effects anymore. And, you know, it, it happens. Sometimes your your good crew, they're good, so they're going to get work, you know. So you, they may not be available the next time, you know, a project comes up. So I found myself teaching people over and over some of the same sort of techniques, like, okay, here's how to you know, do some of the optimizations that we just talked about. Here's how to do this particular technique in real flow. So I just started uh, recording it and making tutorials just so that I be like, okay, go watch this. It's part <laughs> of your optimization. <laughs> exactly. It's all, it's all about optimization. Yeah. So so that's how it started. And then, you know, people started telling me like, oh, well, you should put it on the web. And, you know, I was like, okay. So I threw it on there. And then I got, you know, really huge response. I mean, there were, I think in the first year, there was almost like 100,000 people following. So it's, it started out like really really good but then unfortunately too as i get busy i have less time to do it <laughs> so sometimes uh, there'll be gaps of you know maybe four or six months before i can put something up and then people get mad at me and then i start putting things up again um but really what it's about is just sort of taking all the techniques that i use on a day-to-day basis and getting them out there so that people that could potentially be working for me they could get up to speed. Like I could, you know, look at somebody's real, hire them for a job and say, okay, you're coming in next week. We're going to be doing X, Y, and Z. These are the techniques that are going to be necessary. Go watch this video, prepare yourself before you come in. That way, when they're in, they're running from the, from the jump. It's again, it's trying to do that efficiency, trying to, you know, cause we don't have a lot of time to do this work. Whatever I can do to increase productivity, I'm going to do it. <laughs> How do you approach making tutorials? Like what's your, what's your approach to educating people here with, with VFX, especially when um, you could be varying between massively different tools and, and what have you. So how do you approach, I guess, educating your current and future employees? Well, I find sort of, you know, especially if a new, you know, version of software comes out or there's a new particular technique that I learn, I, any, it always starts out sort of like that as a baseline. Um, if ever I learn something new and I'm like, oh, wow, that's a great technique or that saved me a lot of time, tutorial instantly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I go I go home sometimes that day. I, you know, write up a script, write up, you know, an outline, what I want to cover, and then I'll, I'll make a tutorial. And then that's like sort of how it all started is sometimes even for me not to forget a particular technique because, you know, you may go eight months between a job where, you know, you never touch snow again. You know, you're you're not making CD snow every day. Well, how did I do that? Okay, well, it's been six months. So I got to remember. I just go watch the tutorial. So part of it's reminding myself of what I've even done. Yeah, <laughs> which is crazy the amount of constant knowledge and and change that you have to constantly re-educate yourself with oh absolutely like that's that's one of the biggest you know sort of general working philosophies that i have and that i try to instill in like interns that i have or people that work with me is especially in our industry new versions come out every year 
Like, I mean, if you, if you wait two years, you're literally a dinosaur already. Like if you're, you're out of the loop, like you have to constantly train, constantly keep your skills up. If you want to be at a high level, I mean, it's just sort of that concept of it's like, if you're not constantly staying on top of your game, somebody else is, you know, there's always somebody out there that's doing that tutorial or making that extra model on their, on, you know, on their off time. I mean, that's how I, I trained myself, you know, going back to the earlier discussion is when I first picked up uh, Maya, uh, I didn't watch TV for eight months. I just, I read the manual on my lunch break at my day job. And then when I went home, I watched tutorials all night long. And then about eight months later, I had cobbled together enough crappy little VFX shots to trick somebody into giving me a job. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, you know, it's sort of that, that old joke of like, fake it till you make it. Like that first couple of jobs, I mean, same thing. I was making doorknobs with 100,000 polygons on them. But as long as I got the job done just enough to not get fired, I was getting experience and I was getting that knowledge. And then you wake up, you know, three years from then, four years from then, six years from then. And then it's like, oh, well, I actually know what I'm doing now. I'm not faking it till I make it. And now I can refine this even further, especially like when I talk to kids like out of school or whatever, whatever you can do to get that first job doesn't matter what it is until you get that job you're not going to get that that next job you know because i don't know you always see those things where you know experience required well how do i get the experience if i never get a job like that's what internships are for and that's what you know or we're working at night and cobbling together like making a project like that's what i did is i would find some commercial or some whatever that i liked a technique and then i would recreate that and i would contact that company and be like look you make bumblebees for coke commercials I can make a pretty great bumblebee. Take a look. And then, then you get hired. You have to find something to put yourself ahead of the, the, <laughs> the undulating masses of everybody looking for work. You got to do something to set yourself apart. And then getting back on topic, once you're in there, never let them let you go. <laughs> and, the, and the way that you do that is you do good work. You spend extra time. You take your headphones off. You don't just bury yourself under headphones and then collect a check and go home. You got to talk to the people around you. You got to talk to your bosses. You got to make yourself useful and constantly train. And that's what I still do to this day. I mean, like I, I mean, I still, you know, I watch TV again. But if I have downtime, I'm reading a manual or I'm, I'm reading a blog post somebody has, or I'm, you know, you got to constantly train. Now I have one last question that I like to ask everyone, and uh, because we work in the film industry, uh, we see a lot of films, or unless you're reading manuals. <laughs> um, but what's your favorite guilty pleasure film? that you like to watch? Uh, I have two, and I've watched them a million times, and I will continue to watch them a million times. Uh, it's Big Trouble in Little China yeah. and Tremors. Oh, I was just talking about Tremors with my wife. She's never seen it, so I have oh, to make her watch get it. That. Yeah. you got to get on that. Yeah. <laughs> they're making a new one. Are they? Oh, that always yeah, has me worried. I'm always, filming it, yeah. I'm always nervous about that because sometimes they nail it, and it's amazing, and then other times you get just terrible terrible remakes yeah well they've, they've already made the terrible they i think they've they made three other sequels that were just absolute dog shit but this one looks like at least there's a little bit of budget behind it so yeah. it doesn't have kevin bacon though so i don't know how good it can be but it has bert so who knows well who knows maybe they'll have him they're not telling us maybe they're keeping it a secret and they can kevin bacon oh that will... would be great yeah that, that would be great I, i've actually um about uh i think six or seven miles north of, of L.A. is where they filmed that. Okay. And uh, actually, I took my wife there and we went up on the rocks and took pictures. And <laughs> it was well, great. Thank you very much for letting me interview and I and I look forward to the, the live AMA.
Yeah, definitely. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, and uh, good luck trying to cobble some of that together. I know I talk really fast. And I grew up in Chicago, so no I problem. got a bit of motor mouth. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks very much, man. Thank you very much. Have a good time in L.A. So that was my interview with Timothy Hansen. As you know, we have Drunk Histories interview this Wednesday with the launch of their official third season, so make sure to check that out. Uh, of course, again, thank you so much to Tim for being so understanding, and of course, thanks to RealFlow for helping us set this all up. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.